So as I mentioned the last time, uh, well, not the last time, the last time that I preached through James or in James, um, I have an opportunity about six or seven times a year to come and share from the Word of God with you. So as, uh, as I said, I'll be working my way through the letter of James. We don't know how long that will take. It depends on how, uh, how many days there are uh, available to me. But this week we are looking at uh, the second portion of chapter 1. And so there are a, a number of things that we'll need to consider um, kind of in terms of the text. But before we do that, I'm just going to read through the text again so it's fresh in our minds. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is coming from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Now, right off the bat, we have to sort of ask ourselves a question. And the fact that I'm preaching verses 12 through 18 should uh, help answer that question for you. But the question always remains in the literature about James is does verse 12 relate to the previous passages or does verse 12 begin a new section? Just for the sake of transparency, the argument for verse 12 being tied to the previous section, closing it out, uh, rests on a, a literary technique we've discussed in the past called an inclusio. And so what an inclusio is, or a, an envelope basically, is you have two, two phrases or words or themes that come at the beginning and end of a section, and they serve to sort of envelope the section or envelop the section to show you that this thing, this group of texts belongs together. So we see in, in verse 2, it talks about counting it all joy when uh, you meet trials of various kinds. And this testing produces steadfastness, which leads to perfection and completeness. We talked a lot about that the last time uh, we were in James. Well, verse 12 reads, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life. So you can see how there might be a good argument, and it is a good argument, that the initial discussion of blessings in trial... And this final discussion of the reward for those trials, for persisting through those trials is related. However, I think it's better to read verse 12 and following as the beginning of a new related section. James does this interesting thing where when he transitions from one section to another, he uses a, a, a technique where it uses similarly sounding words. And so we see that, that here. I won't bore you with the Greek, but it's present in this. So the beginning of this section is sort of contrasting what it means to be blessed and to persist and then what it means to not persist. So we see in uh, this passage here that testing brings about endurance. This leads to perfection and completion, which we can talk about as sanctification and glorification. It does not say that the one who persists will be justified. We'll talk a lot about uh, how James thinks about justification and talks about justification when we get to chapter two. 
But what it says is the one who will remain steadfast under a trial when he has stood the test receives the crown of life. The only other place we see this language of crown of life is in the uh, sort of closing of Revelation. And this is related to sort of the final reward that we, when we enter into our final rest, we're given this reward. I think we tend to think of crown and we sort of think of a crown, you know, encrusted in rubies and gems, something that a king or a queen might wear. But the word crown in scripture typically refers more to the, the laurel wreath that a, an Olympic w- uh, victor would wear. Um, if you think of uh, Shakespeare's Julius Caesar towards the end, Mark Anthony is running in a, a race and he's given a laurel wreath as the sign of his victory. So we see that James is focused on and emphasizing in this passage here, he's focusing on the end result of the trials. But he takes a minute to sort of interrupt that and talk about a way that we can get off track. This passage can be a little confusing uh, because the word trial and temptation and test, they all can come from the same Greek word. So even in the span of just a couple sentences, we see that this word can refer to different things depending on the rest of the context. Uh, The word test is also one of those common words here. So we have to kind of parse out carefully what we're talking about. In verse 12, uh, or sorry, verse 13, we read, let no one say he is tempted. Uh, No one when he is tempted say, I am being tempted of God for God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. Well, previous in the chapter, we talked about how these trials, which is the same word, it's the same Greek word. These trials are brought to us by God. They're put in front of us by God in order to produce steadfastness, which reinforces our faith and proves our faith and then ultimately leads us into perfection. So we have to read carefully through these next couple sections here. It says, God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires then desire when it has conceived gives birth to sin and sin when it is fully grown brings forth death. So this is giving us a picture of how James in this portion of the text is using the word tempted, right? When we think about temptations, we generally think of some external thing, some external desirable thing that then perhaps causes us with our sin nature to as we reach out and take that thing, we sin in so doing. So it, it could be money, right? Money is a neutral thing. It's not good. It's not bad. Uh, it's a fact of life. There's always been, uh, in, in most societies, there's always been some sort of currency that enables us to fairly and justly enact transactions. But at the same time, if we have a lust for money, which we typically call greed, but if we have an, an over- Uh, an overly emphasized desire for money, when we reach out and take it, then we've sinned and we've fallen into temptation. But even in that statement, we see that the reaching out for it itself is not sin, or at least not the beginning of sin. It's the internal desires that we have, the internal corrupt motivations that we have, which causes a, a neutral or even a good thing to become sin when we grasp it is not because of something internal to that thing, but something internal to us. 
So we see here when he says uh, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed, that's a fishing metaphor, right? It was a, it was a common pairing of words that had become sort of almost a proverbial thing in, in this era of Greek. Lured and enticed was a, pair, was a pair. And so even though we normally would think of the word enticed, which is, uh, is the bait, right? You put the bait on the end of the hook, that's the enticement. And the, when it says lured or enticed, lured is the, the reeling in. So the picture here that's, that's um, given to us is this picture of some good thing that's out there. And it's not that good thing that is the bait. It's our own desires that is the bait. So even though we would think of that thing out there, whether it's money or drugs or power or pride, whatever it is, position of authority, a position of influence, whatever that is that's out there may or may not be a good thing. It may or may not be a neutral thing, but it is not that thing that we are talking about when we talk about temptation here. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. So James is saying that the, the temptation that he's talking about comes from an internal motivation that is coming from the wrong place. If I'm, uh, if I'm driving to work and I want to be safe on the road, that's a good desire. If that desire becomes a fear or a paranoia or some sign of overwhelming anxiety, that's now become a wicked desire because I'm no longer trusting in the Lord. I should be safe. I should do that. It should not paralyze me with fear, should not paralyze me with anxiety. And you could apply that to just about any other kind of external temptation we might face. Just as a side note, we sometimes read this and we sometimes think about this and we wonder how it applies to Christ's temptations. And the easy answer is to just flip that word over when we read about the temptations in the Gospels and talk about, well, it was just testing. We don't get off that easy though, because again, it's the same word. What we see here is that even though Christ was externally tempted, there was no principle of sin within him. There was no evil corruption within Christ that would lay hold of that external thing. It wasn't bad for Christ after 40 days of fasting to be hungry. It would have been a wicked thing for Christ to succumb to that desire at odds with his father's will and turn the bread into stone. And this helps us to understand now, going back a little bit, why it is said that God does not tempt anyone and why it is said that God cannot be tempted with evil. Because there is no internal principle of sin in God. So although God brings things to us that serve as trials, coronavirus is a trial that is facing all of us, right? Maybe the cost of your snow tires this last week is a trial that's facing you. Or maybe it's the frustration that you can't get any snow tires <laughs> that's facing you. All of these things are put before us as we learned last time. And we should count them all joy because they produce steadfast in us. They test and confirm our faith. But we can never, if we fail that test and fall into sin, we can never point to God as the one who caused that. Because even though that external desire is in front of us, it is not God's intention for that test to lead you into sin. That comes from us. 
right? The classic uh, Christian position is that God is not the author of sin. So even though he is the creator of all things, even though all things unfold according to the providence of his will, nothing happens contrary to his decree. The things that bring about evil and sin in our world, that comes from the creature. Whether that's from us or in the case of demonic evil, whether it comes from a fallen angel or even in the cases of natural evil. There's a lot in the news right now about climate change. And I don't want to get into all of the political discussions about climate change, but there are clearly some things going on in our world that are unprecedented. I read a report on, uh, online this past week that if you were in India right now, the air has been four times what's considered safe for pollution for over a week now. So we had uh, a couple, maybe it was a couple months back over the summer, we had a couple days in a row where our air quality index was a little high from some of the wildfires. Some that were in our immediate area, but then the, the bigger ones that were out west. And you could see the haze in the air. That was, I think, around 120. 100 is, 100 is considered unsafe. So this evil that we see, this natural evil, it actually comes in part, some of it, from our own human actions. So even something like the natural evil that we see in the world, the pollution and the air, uh, air quality issues we see in India right now, or we think of the various floods and uh, hurricanes that happen, even that comes from an original created act, right? There wouldn't be deadly hurricanes had Adam not sinned. There wouldn't be um, pollution in the air, some of which comes from us, some of which comes from natural causes like volcanoes and forest fires. That wouldn't be the case if Adam had not fall, fallen. And so even though God brings these things into being, even though he decrees and ordains and they fall out according to his will, he still cannot be tempted with evil and he tempts no one. So we see he never puts an evil desire in our heart. He is never the source of the corruption that reaches out and sinfully takes hold of something that is otherwise good. We'll come back to that uh, thought here when we get, get down into um, 16 and 17. But real quick, just turn over. I want to show you, since I mentioned Adam and Eve, I want to show you the, uh, the text here. And I think you'll see clearly when we get to Genesis 3, this principle at work. So we're all familiar with this uh, account. Uh, we're getting to be that time of year where we're going to start thinking about Bible reading plans. And I'm sure all of us have made it through Genesis 1 through 3 every year. And then we lag out in Leviticus or Numbers somewhere. But we're familiar with this text. But I want to read it a little bit more carefully. So starting in verse 3, it says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the tree in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat, eat of the fruit in, of that tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat, it, eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes 
and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. So do you see here in this text how this works out? Even Satan coming and putting this external desire in front of the woman is not the one who put the internal desire in the woman. We can't even blame the devil when we sin. Satan can't change our internal desires. He doesn't generate them. He doesn't control our emotions. He's able to do lots of things, but primarily he simply puts something out there that he knows is good bait for us. Right? In this case, the woman was already like God. She was already the image of God. She already knew the difference between good and evil. She already knew that it was wrong to disobey the Lord. And she proves it when the devil asks her if she can eat the fruit. And she says, no, we were told by God not to. But we see here that she sees it was beautiful. It was good for food and it was desirable to make one wise. Now, this is a mystery because the woman didn't have any sort of internal corruption. There, there are several chief mysteries of the Christian religion. Uh, and one of them is how does Adam and Eve who have no, no sinful corrupt nature somehow have a desire that's contrary to the will of the Lord? We, we don't know. But what we do see is that this is an effect. The woman sees something that is otherwise good and she desires it. And that desire causes her to take it in a way that was not ordained by God or was not lawful in God's view. So as I said, this helps us to understand a little bit more about this difference between God tempting us in the sense of bringing a trial or a test in front of us. We can count it all joy when we face trials of every kind, knowing that the wise God is the one who has brought that in front of us and has given us everything we need to succeed in that trial. At the same time, we can recognize that that good intention, that good gift, which we'll talk about, that good gift that God has given can be used for sinful purposes. That comes from us. So turn back over to James and we're going to camp out here in the, this closing verses here just a tiny bit. So James 1.16, let me get back there in my Bible. So it says, do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. That, that is another one of those verses where, where scholars disagree whether that goes with the previous verses or the, the, the later verses. I am of the opinion it goes with the former verses. So it's saying, do not be deceived, my brothers. This principle of sin, this corruption within you does not come from God. Do not be deceived. If that reading is right, it means that there is this latent tendency in us to blame God. We see that in Genesis uh, 3 as well. The woman that you gave me, gave me the fruit. The serpent with this implicit that you created deceived me and I ate. The only person in that account that doesn't blame God is the serpent, which is interesting, I think. However, it could go with the next verses, with verses 17, in which case it would uh, imply that there's some sort of error that we are apt to make to think that some good things do not come from God. So starting in verse 17, every good gift and every perfect gift 
is from above coming down from the father of lights with whom there's no variation or shadow due to change. Verse 17 is a little bit weird to translate. If you translate it literally, it's something like every good giving and every perfect gift above is coming from the father of lights. So does that mean that it's the good gifts that are above and they're coming down to us? Or is it that the good gifts have come down already from above? It's a little bit ambiguous. But this, this play on words here, this variation or shadow due to change, this is a very common way that people in the first century talked about the movement of the planets. The word planet itself actually means wandering star. And so if you think about uh, prior to Galileo, prior to the telescopes, you look up in the sky and there's the sun and the moon and they, they move in very predictable fashions and they have a, a daily rotation. You see them once a day. And then there's the stars that are far off in the distance. And we recognize that they sort of move across our horizon, but very little at a time. And then the ancient astronomers realized there were these other stars that kind of go like this through the sky. They go back and forth. They don't seem to have any predictable pattern. So they called them wandering stars, which is where the word planet comes from. It literally means wanderer. That's what this is talking about. That's what this saying refers to, is that the planets, these wandering stars, their shadows due to change. They're relatively fixed. We can predict when they're going to move, but sometimes they move a different direction than we would think they would. But God's not like that. So you don't have to turn there, but I'm just going to read from uh, Psalm 105 briefly. So in Psalm 105, uh, verses 25 through 27, uh, let's see. I think that is the wrong passage. It is. I'm not going to try to find it because that would be a lot of time. But this passage talk, starts out by talking about how the Lord created. He created the heavens. He created the earth. And it sort of presents them as this stable foundation. And then it moves on to say the Lord does not change. And so even in contrast to what seems like a stable heaven, what seems like stable planets in the sky or stars in the sky, the Lord is even more secure and sure than that. Now, this passage is specifically talking about salvation, that the good gifts that are coming down or the good gift above that is coming from the father of light. This whole section is talking about the gift of salvation, that, that we are given a crown of life. We're made perfect and complete. And then he closes out by talking about how this is from the will of the father. But this also helps to reveal and reinforce what I just said about God not having a principle of sin in him. God not having any sort of variation or internal corruption which would lead him to be tempted by sin. So when it says God cannot be tempted with evil, not only is that because there's no internal corruption in God, there's nothing in him that would latch on to something sinfully, but that can never change. Right? Adam and Eve had no principle that would latch onto something until they did. They were created in the garden, pure and righteous and holy. 
They knew what God expected of them. They didn't have sin clinging to them. They had everything they needed to succeed in the probation that they were given by God until they didn't. And that's a scary thought for me. I think sometimes we, you know, we ask like, why, why does the sin of Adam and Eve uh, carry down to us? Why are we culpable or guilty of Adam's sin? In part, it's because we would have sinned too. Adam represented us, not only in this metaphysical sense or in this sense where we were descended from him, but he represented us in that he was the prototypical man. He was the pattern that all of us are based on. And so his decision to sin, Eve's decision to sin, to turn away from God's commands, we would have done the same thing. Probably for the same reason, because we thought we were doing a good thing, even though it wasn't. But there's something more here about God's faithfulness that I think is really important for us to understand. If I make a promise to come and preach on Sunday today. There are all sorts of things that could get in the way of that. I could wake up sick. There could have been a snowstorm uh, that caused us not to meet. Um, I, you know, something could have happened. The power could be out. We canceled the service. There could be all sorts of things that come into play that might change that. All of those things are a result of change. They're a result of the instability in our world. We've, we've had it happen just in the last year where we were planning on gathering at one point and then all of a sudden, here comes coronavirus. State says no more than 10 people in a room together. We've got to pivot. But that underscores the importance of a robust doctrine of God's changelessness. It's very popular in some portions of evangelical theology right now to deny either outwardly or sort of by implication that God is actually changeless. This isn't just on fringe liberal groups, theologically liberal groups. Uh, one of the more famous apologists uh, who teaches at Biola in California, his name is William Lane Craig, has flatly denied the changelessness of God. He says that God is bound in time and he changes along with his creatures. Even in more conservative reformed circles, there were professors at Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia who were arguing that God takes on additional attributes to relate to his people. And this resulted in a sort of dual natured God. And we're not talking about the dual natures of the incarnation. That's a totally different discussion. But this is a real challenge in evangelicalism and in reformed theology in today's context. So it's important for us to understand that the moment we introduce any sort of change into God, any sort of change, and we lose the biblical justification for why it is we can trust his promises. So I'm going to turn to two passages here. The first one you don't have to turn to. Uh, it's Malachi, and it's chapter 3. I'm just going to read it and make a few brief comments, and then we'll spend a little bit more time looking at um, the next reference here. So Malachi, as you know, is the last, um, the last book of the, Bible, of the Old Testament. Kind of famously ends with the word curse. The last words of the Old Testament are utter destruction. So it's a nice cheery book. But in the midst of all of that, 
we have this beautiful passage uh, in chapter three. I'm going to read verses one through six. Behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and a fuller soap. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old in the former years. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear. Do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. And then in verse six here, for I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, O children of Jacob, you are not consumed. Do you see that? The reason that the children of Jacob, in spite of all the judgment that's coming, in some ways, because of all the judgment that's coming, can be confident that the promises that the Lord made to them in Moses, in Abraham, from the other prophets, in the Psalms, all the way back to Genesis 3.15, when the promise was made that the seed of the serpent would be destroyed by the seed of the woman, all of that the Israelites can have confidence in because I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you are not consumed. Now, what if, what if, some of these others who want to admit change into God were right. Well, we could no longer say, I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. At best, we could say, for I, the Lord, change in certain ways. Therefore, you, O children, probably won't be consumed. That doesn't sound like the God that I worship. That doesn't sound like the gospel that I believe. And then just finishing out in 16 and 18, it says, Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them, and a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts. In that day, I, when I make up my treasured possession, I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. So this connection between God's promise and God's unchangeableness is clear as day. Now, there's all, all sorts of other reasons theologically that we can come to the conclusion that God can be trusted. But the reason that God gives us in his word, apart from other philosophical considerations about why God is changeless, and those are out there, they're good to talk about and think about. But the reason God gives us in his word is because he is utterly changeless. He will never abandon his people because he promised that he wouldn't and he doesn't change. Turn over quickly to Hebrews chapter 6. And I'm going to start reading in verse 11. Hebrews 6. 
verse 11. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those through faith who through faith and patience inherit the promises for when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself saying, surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham having patiently waited, obtained the promise for people swear by something greater than themselves. And in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have a strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. So the author of Hebrews says the same thing. He basically just preached the sermon I did. Or I suppose I preached the sermon he did. The promise of God is unchanging because the God who promised is unchanging. So if I swear by myself, if I, I swear to you by my life that I will pay you back the money I've borrowed, well, that can change. I can die before I pay back the money. Or you could die before I pay back the money. So this connection between faithfulness and stability, that God is our rock, he is our fortress, right? These are images of things that relative to everything else are unchanging. This is vital for us as we understand the gospel. Turn back to James and we'll conclude here. So as we've read, every good gift comes from the father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. And of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. So as kind of Calvinist Christians, people who uphold the sovereignty in the superintendence of God. We know that this will for our salvation did not start when we were born. It didn't start when our parents were born. It didn't start when this church was founded or when our pastor was called here. It didn't start when uh, the council of Nicaea met. It didn't start even in Jerusalem or in Bethlehem. It started before the foundations of the world. So not only do we have this promise which God made in time, but we have this eternal promise in eternity past that the Father made to the Son, that the Son will be given a people and the Son will redeem those people. That promise is secure. That will is executed. And because of this, we are brought forth by the word of truth. Right? He's promised that we will find him in the scriptures when we seek him there and he will save us through the hearing and reading of the word. That's how he builds faith in us. We don't have time to go there. I've, I've used up all my time. I have more notes, but we'll probably come back to it next time I preach. This is key 
Because even among all of creation, among all the planets, the beauties of the cosmos, the galaxies, the supernovas, the black holes, the flowers, the sunsets, all of these things which are glorious and beautiful, right? Christ said, even, even Solomon in all his splendor was not arrayed in the same way that the flowers and the lilies are. We're the first fruits of that. God has not called us merely to change our legal status before him, but he's called us and saved us and brought us forth by his wealth through the word of truth to show us off to the whole world. We are the trophies of Christ's conquest. Christ threw down the powers of darkness. He overcame the evil of the devil. He even overcame the darkness in our own hearts. And that all serves to bring him glory. And it serves to confirm him as the faithful, unchanging God who has rescued his people. And this is meant, as the author of Hebrews said, to give us assurance, right? When we read it and we're frustrated because we are seeing the bills coming in or because we're getting that little tickle in the back of our throat and we have to go get our brain swabbed with a COVID swab and we're wondering, is it, is it going to come back positive this time? I don't know. I was on the bus with someone the other day who was coughing a lot. Am I going to have to miss two weeks of work? What am I going to do? I don't have any vacation time left. All of that, we can have assurance that God is good because he promised us he would save us. And he promised us that we can have joy because those things make us more like Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we are humbled by who you are. And although we catch a glimpse of it through what you've revealed in scripture, we know that you only are able to speak to us in language that we understand. And so you speak to us in baby talk. You lisp to us to accommodate yourselves to our capacities. So I pray that as much as we can, we would seek you and honor you. And we pray that you would make yourselves known, make yourself known in more and more clear and increasing fashions to us as we study your word. We love you. We thank you that you have saved us. We thank you that your promise is secure and that you never change. In Jesus' name, amen.